welcome to The Daily Bite. I'm your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Our study in Deuteronomy continues today with chapter 14. You are the sons of Yahweh your God. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. For you are a people, holy to Yahweh your God, and Yahweh has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You shall not eat any abomination. These are the animals you may eat. The ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roebuck, the wild goat, the ibex, the antelope, and the mountain sheep. Every animal that parts the hoof and has the hoof cloven in two and chews the cud among the animals you may eat. Yet of those that chew the cud or have the hoof cloven, you shall not eat these, the camel, the hare, and the rock badger, because they chew the cud but do not part the hoof, are unclean for you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof but does not chew the cud, is unclean for you. Their flesh you shall not eat, and their carcasses you shall not touch. Of all that are in the waters you may eat these. Whatever has fins and scales you may eat, and whatever does not have fins and scales you shall not eat, it is unclean for you. You may eat all clean birds, but these are the ones you shall not eat, the eagle, the bearded vulture, the black vulture, the kite, the falcon of any kind, every raven of any kind, the ostrich, the nighthawk, the seagull, the hawk of any kind, the little owl and the short-eared owl, the barn owl and the tawny owl, the carrion vulture and the cormorant, the stork, the heron of any kind, the hoopoe and the bat. And all the winged insects are unclean for you, they shall not be eaten. All clean winged things you may eat. You shall not eat anything that has died naturally. You may give it to the sojourner who is within your towns, that he may eat of it, or you may sell it to a foreigner, for you are a people, holy to Yahweh your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before Yahweh your God and the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil. And the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear Yahweh your God always. And if the way is too long for you, so that you are not able to carry the tithe when Yahweh your God blesses you, because the place is too far from you, which Yahweh your God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money, and bind up the money in your hand, and go to the place that Yahweh your God chooses, and spend the money for whatever you desire. Oxen, or sheep, or wine, or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before Yahweh your God and rejoice, you and all your household. And you shall not neglect the Levite who is within your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. At the end of every three years you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year, and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow who are within your towns, shall come and eat and be filled, that Yahweh your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. This is the word of the Lord. So, as we start our chapter today, 
what we would hear is a gospel phrase, you are the sons of Yahweh your God. This is good news. And it would be a great family conversation to start out. How? How are you a son of God? Or for your daughters, how are you a daughter of God? We recognize this happens when the Holy Spirit creates faith in us and God claims us as his own. For a lot of us in the Lutheran Church, that has happened through the the gift of baptism, that when we were just children, we were already being brought to the Lord's kingdom. Others, this happens in adulthood. As they hear the word of God proclaimed and the Holy Spirit works that gift of faith within them. Faith comes by hearing, Romans 10, verse 17. But we also know faith comes through being born again with water in the Word, water in the Spirit, as Jesus talks about in John 3. So we've got these two ways that we can come into the kingdom of God. But once you're in, you're in. You are a son of God. You're part of a new family. And this is such good news, that we are heirs together with Christ co-heirs of God the Father, the King, who has made all things and who gives to us all things. So the Old Testament nation of Israel, even though they're not quite a nation yet, they are a large people, numbering over a couple million, most likely. They are the sons of God, set apart, holy, made to be his, a light amongst the nations, that all the other peoples around them will look at them, they will see that they are living life differently, and yet it goes well for them. And that through that, as Yahweh blesses them, the other nations will want to know more about Yahweh. They'll want to learn more about the God who cares for Israel and provides for Israel in ways that they have not seen before. And they will come, and they will hear of Yahweh, and the Lord can bring faith into their hearts too. That's the goal of so much of the holiness idea for the Israelites in the Old Testament, that they are to be set apart. And that's what we see with these first couple of verses. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. Verse 2, for you are a people holy to Yahweh. In other words, You're set apart for Yahweh. You can't do these things. The other nations are doing these things, but not you. I'm not sure if I can tell you everything that goes into those pagan religions about cutting and baldness. We see bits and pieces. These things seem to be prominent in Canaanite faith. When Elijah brings the challenge against the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings chapter 18, as they're They've built their altar, they've made their sacrifice, they're calling out for Baal to answer. One of the things they do after a while is they start to cut themselves as though they are, they believe it's going to draw God's attention to them. Again, they're false God. It's going to get Baal's attention. And eventually, Elijah just taunts and mocks their false God. Even coming to the point where he says maybe he's just relieving himself, maybe he's in the bathroom. Baldness seems to be maybe a little more connected with grief. Again, in pagan worldview, but you do see it mentioned in the prophets from time to time as well. Isaiah has a a couple of uh, references to baldness and 
Jeremiah as well. Leviticus chapter 21 verse 5, for God's people very specifically forbid baldness for priests. I'm not sure historically where the Catholic monk idea of a tonsure came from, but it, it seems to be a bit at odds with these Old Testament instructions. You are holy to Yahweh. These false nations do this. They worship their false gods in these ways. Do not do this. Do not be like them. You are a people chosen by Yahweh for his treasured possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. That's a gift. It's been given to them. They've been chosen. They have not chosen themselves. Most of the rest of the text is going to be on the same idea, and I don't know that we can really say why. So verses 3 through 21 are all about food that is clean versus food that is unclean. And it's all meat. It's all living things that you can kill and eat. And we've already seen the instruction here in Deuteronomy, back in chapter 12, that they were, they're allowed to eat meat in their towns when they want to. Genesis chapter 9 is where the Lord first gives the instruction to his people, to Noah, that they may eat meat. But there's the unclean and the clean. All the way through the time, the history of the Old Testament people of God for close to 2,000 years, more than 2,000 years. And here's your list. So land animals come first in the opening paragraph there. And then we have those that live in the water in verses 9 and 10. Then flying things in verses 11 through 20. What's the distinction point? And I don't know if we can truly say why. We can see the distinctions. The Lord makes them. How do you choose an animal? Well, does it have a parted hoof? Does it chew cud? And you can see the description based on how these animals eat and how they walk. Their body, physically, determines whether you can eat them or not. Even the pig is forbidden, which means there goes pork and there goes bacon. But why? That's the question that the Old Testament never directly answers. In conversations with our culture today, as they try to disprove God's word or call Christians hypocrites, they like to go to Leviticus. They don't usually go to this passage in Deuteronomy for this one. But in Leviticus, which forbids, for example, uh, same-sex marriage, they would quickly go to that and point out, well, Leviticus also forbids eating shellfish, and yet you eat lobster and crab. You hypocrite. So different types of Old Testament law certainly in play. The question, though, of why, again, the Scripture doesn't answer it. So we can ponder it. It's okay to think about it. Many historians, many Christian theologians throughout history, I should say, have made lots of different suggestions. I think the one that is perhaps most fitting with the rest of the Old Testament account would be to consider this like we would consider their, their eating of manna. If you go back to Exodus chapter 16, when God gives them manna because they grumble and they have no food to eat, he gives them very specific instructions that they are to gather only for the day, and only what they need for the day. 
They are not to keep any for the next day. And then, when the Sabbath day is coming, on day six, they are to collect twice as much, and they are not to go back out on the Sabbath day because that would be work. It is all a thing about trusting in the Lord. Will they trust him? He was testing them to see if they would trust him. That can be for the building up of faith. And so maybe the argument here that the Lord is doing this as a test of faith to see if Israel will trust and follow. He sets down a law that perhaps isn't entirely necessary, but it fits. It fits with what he's given them to do. Obey my commandments. Obey everything the Lord has given us to do. There are other theories, many of them. Uh, Another one that might be helpful is the idea that maybe some of these types of meat were more dangerous at that point in history. Uh, That there are certain illnesses that could be had from eating, for example, pork that has not been as well kept because they don't have the refrigeration technology we have today. I don't buy into that one as much because all of these foods will become clean. All of them by the New Testament time. And they haven't really changed uh, food handling techniques all that much in those, those 2,000 years. It has changed drastically today, yes. But not then. So what was I referencing with the New Testament? Mark chapter 7, verse 19. Uh, we are told by Mark that by this, Jesus has declared all food clean. And in Acts chapter 10, the Lord lowers down that blanket, the sheet from heaven, that is covered in animals, clean and unclean, and tells Peter to rise and eat. Peter says that nothing unclean has ever touched his lips, but the Lord tells him that what he has called clean, Peter's not to call common, which is another way to say unclean. Peter ultimately learns that vision is not just about food, but rather about people that the gospel, the good news of God, is to go not just to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles that were seen as unclean. And so he immediately ends up being taken to Cornelius' house, a Roman soldier, centurion. So all of these foods here in Deuteronomy 14 that are called unclean, they're no longer necessarily off limits for us today. Like you can see the warning about a vulture. Vultures eat unclean things. They eat dead things. And the people of Israel weren't supposed to go near things that were unclean. So that would be included. But, again, that's why you see so many birds of prey on that list. But I suppose now, if you want to, and the local governing authority doesn't have some kind of law forbidding it, like the eagle, I'm pretty sure there would be a law against in our culture, then you're free to eat of it. Now, verse 21 has a couple of additional laws that are a little different. The first is that we are not to eat anything that has died naturally. So anything that died on its own. Perhaps that is to allow that to be eaten by the birds that were just mentioned in the previous paragraph so that they have food. That's the Lord providing for them. Could be the idea that they have their own illnesses born inside of them. That doesn't seem fitting with the idea that they would still be okay to sell them. Again, it seems to be this is all about holiness, that God's people would be set apart as being different from the world. That's what we see there. For you are a people holy to Yahweh your God. The rest of the world acts one way. Israel is being called to act 
a different way and to live a different way, and it will seem strange to their neighbors. But then again, so is the idea that we preach and teach that a man rose from the dead. That's going to seem strange to our neighbors. But as they come about us and they see how we live, they see how we love, they see how we care for each other, maybe, just maybe, it'll open their ears, a willingness to to hear us out, to hear the hope that is within us. Verse 21 ends with another little instruction. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. I think this one is as simple as the idea that God has given the mother's milk to care for the young goat. So do not take the thing that was meant to care for it, was meant to nourish it, and use it as an instrument to kill it. This is not God's design. This is not God's creation. If you're going to kill a goat, go ahead, kill and eat the goat. But don't do so in a wicked way. Be careful about how we treat these things. So this applies today to those who uh, say that because of their faith, they should not eat animals. The Lord has given to do so. It's okay to do so. But that doesn't mean we should just do so however we want These are still God's creation. We should care for them. But he has also given them for our care. It's a both and. We care for them the best that we can. And when we we do consume them, we do so in a way that is not torturous or horrendous. Lastly, here we have tithes. A tithe is 10%, by the way, one-tenth what they take from their field every year, one-tenth of that is a tithe to do the place that God will choose to make his name dwell there, Jerusalem, that they are to take these things to God, that you may learn to fear Yahweh. It's about trust. God has given you all that you have. Do you trust that if you take 10% of it, just a small portion, and you give it back to the Lord, that he'll use the rest of what he's given you to care for you? The Lord is seeking to use the tithe to teach faith, trust, to his people. There is a connection between faith and fear. We fear the things that we trust can harm us. We fear the things that we trust have power over us, and so it is here. But you can see that is a a kind of faith. Faith that they can act. Now, if you're not able to carry your tithe, so for example, if it's a, an animal, a, a livestock, ox get pretty big pretty quick. Sell it and bring the money to Jerusalem. Three times a year, Israelites were to pilgrimage to the city of Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover, for the Feast of Weeks, which we know as Pentecost, better today, as well as the Feast of Booths. They were to come to Jerusalem, to the temple of the Lord in that place. This is also where the New Testament practice of the money changers arises from. And I say New Testament, it's not really God-given in the New Testament, but we're told what's going on. Because as they brought their money to the temple, that money had the faces of various men on it, just as a lot of our currency today does, and that was viewed as being an idol. You could not bring that unclean money into the Lord's house. And so the priests and various others, of the probably the leading clans like the Pharisees, Sadducees, etc., 
they would be there at the temple, and you could go to these certain men, money changers, and they would take your world money, and they would give you a special currency for the temple that you could then use to go and shop and buy the animal or whatever it was you were going to use as an offering to the Lord. So take the money, go to the place the Lord chooses, Jerusalem, spend it for whatever you desire, Notice whatever your appetite craves, because you get to eat it. The Lord is still using the tithe to care for his people even in this. And, verse 27, do not neglect the Levite, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. The Levite is focused on God's word for you, to teach you the Lord's word, and also to offer sacrifices, depending on where you are. And... In that case, he does not have land to grow his own animals or his own crops, so you care for him as he seeks to care for you. A lot of interdependence among God's people. And then in the last two verses here, not described too fully, but another offering that every three years, so a three-year cycle, three-year rotation, there would be a tithe given And that tithe, we can see in verse 29, is going to be used to care for the Levite, that same one we were just talking about, but also the sojourner, so the foreigner who's living among you and has no land of his own, the fatherless, so orphans, the widow, those who have lost their husbands and thus the means to provision, all of these who are in need, the Lord will fill them. And we see this very well in Malachi chapter 3. God rebukes the people for not tithing, for robbing him, is the way he phrases it. He says, Will man rob God, yet you are robbing me? But you say, How have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says Yahweh of hosts, if I will not open the windows of the heavens for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says Yahweh of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says Yahweh of hosts. So notice the intention of the tithe, again, to care for those who are in need. It's going to fill the Lord's house so those people can come there for food. It's also a sign of trust, that we trust that God will provide for us. And so the other nations around us see. They see the holy people of God, not because there's something great about us, but because of how great our God is, as he cares for us. And so the tithe today, not mandated in the church, but it has the same kind of a function. Can we trust that if we give back to what the Lord has already given, he's given us 100%, can we trust if we take part of it, Give it back to him for the good of his kingdom here in this world. Caring for those who are in need, providing for your pastor, making sure there's a place of promise to hear the word and receive his sacraments. Can we trust that in that doing, the Lord will still use the rest to provide for us? That is a test of faith. And it is something the Lord still works through to this day as he strengthens and encourages us and also builds up his church for sharing his word to all nations.